The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Beatrice was 18 when she made her debut. Warren G. Harding was president, the unknown soldier was interred at Arlington, and Babe Ruth was sold to the Yankees. She came to say goodbye, as we all must, to the past and to, and a, to a life and a place that soon would exist only in a bittersweet memory. Smooth. Um, yeah, if you like that sort of thing. You know, Kent, there's only one attribute I value more than experience, and that's initiative. Clark Kent, welcome to the Daily Planet. I'll need a task force. I can't cover this story alone. You can have Jimmy. Chief, we're talking about the space program. Okay, take Kent. Kent? Kent! What about Myerson? He's busy. Burns? Budapest. Forget Kent. Uh-uh, he's a good man. Kent is a hack from Smallville. I couldn't make that name up. Kent or nobody. Fine. Don't ever say that I am not a team player. Let's hit it. Get, get on it, will you? Mind if I ask where we're going? To interview Samuel Platt. He's convinced the messenger was sabotaged. I'll brief you on the way. And let's get something straight. I did not work my buns off to become an investigative reporter for the Daily Planet just to babysit some hack from Nowheresville. And one other thing. You are not working with me. You're working for me. I call the shots. I ask the questions. You are low man. I am top banana. And that's the way I like it. Comprende? You like to be on top. Got it. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June the 7th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today, where we are once again joined in studio by Amir Farahi, Executive Director of the London Institute. Welcome to the show, Amir. Thank you. And of course, there have been a lot of changes in your life, your career, the things that you're doing. We'll talk about all of that. After this reminder to our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. Well, Amir, a lot of changes since you've last been on the show. Um, you used to be a regular voice on uh, 1290 CJBK, and unfortunately that's no longer the case, at least for the moment. Yeah, I, I am no longer on the regular weekly roundtable. Obviously, with the Andy Udman show, also the live drive no longer existing, I... I'm not going to be a regular guest on his show. So, yeah, I am I am off of uh, CJBK, and I will uh, see if I'll make an appearance again in the fall, but but again, we'll have to see. You know, we're 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 speaking in the sleepy little town of London, Ontario, Canada. We have a large listening audience throughout the world. So, I'd like to relate what we're about to talk to to municipal politics no matter what country you live in. Mm-hmm. And what Amir's experiences are can be translated to any country in any city because he's an advocate for reasonable governance. 
Um, he's a voice for reason on the uh, airwaves and in the newspapers. And yet, with the changing landscape of the media these days, I mean, you can just have to look at CNN, MSC, NBC, CBC, BBC, any of the major mainstream medias, and the major conglomerates of newspapers throughout Canada. This changing landscape seems to be pushing voices like Amir's to the side, even ours. We were on CHRW at the university here in Western Ontario, University of Western Ontario, and we got kicked off for our political viewpoints. Andy Udman from 1290 also left under suspicious circumstances. The official version is retirement. No, I mean, some people are questioning that. Andrew Lawton was also um, released after five years of being a very rational and reasonable voice on AM980. But again, it was apparently just a, a business model that uh, they didn't want Andrew there. Not necessarily anything political was said. However, again, the suspicion is raised because I don't see this happening with left-wing voices. I see this happening with rational people. Rational well, problems. there have been also papers like Our London, which had a lot of left-wing voices in it that doesn't exist anymore. And you used to write for that as well, didn't you, Amir? Yeah, I used to be a regular columnist there. So a lot of those media opportunities are leaving, although other ones are seem to be popping up. And Mm. I think you're planning something yourself. Well, I mean, I think I'd like to to provide a platform for the people that have lost their opportunity to to be the the voice of reason, as you mentioned. And I think there's a lot of people that want to continue hearing their voices whether it be the people that you mentioned, like Andy Udman or Andrew Lawton, I think there's a lot of people that that appreciate their their shows, and so I think I think having a platform out there, um, kind of like what we have mm-hmm. here, uh, would be would be great would be great for those people and would be great for the many people that are looking for an alternative to what we currently have with the mainstream media. Now, interestingly enough, after all these things have disappeared, some new things have come on to cite in terms of your own activities, you are now the chair of the London Transportation Committee, which you were not when when we last had you on the show. If if anything, anybody would have thought that would be the last place you'd ever find a position, given your stand on things like the BRT and certain issues of public transit. And of course, you're now also project manager of Venture London, which is a, a project being conducted in downtown London on York Street. Want to tell us a little bit about each of those new developments? Because those seem, that's big news. Yeah, so the Transportation Committee looks after all aspects of transportation in the City of London. And, and yeah, I've been, a, I've been a vocal critic of the Bus Rapid Transit Plan, which is the largest transportation plan that the city has basically taken into an initiative. And I think that's part of the reason is that I've been such a vocal critic, and I think there are committee members that don't necessarily agree with the plan. In fact, I was actually appointed by the committee not to only be chair, but actually be a member of the municipal advisory group for rapid transit as well, specifically for bus rapid transit. And believe it or not, I'm the only person on that committee that is a critic of bus rapid transit, you know, not including Councillor Phil Squire, who's also been a Mm -hmm. critic of BRT. But there aren't that many voices at City Hall that are critical of this plan. And I think it's a good opportunity for me to be that voice because I think majority of Londoners do not agree with the plan. It is a flawed plan and it is a big, big waste of money. So I'm happy to be chair because I think I can now uh, steer the committee in a, in a direction that is consistent with not only the values of Londoners, but exactly what they believe. Now, my, a lot of people are under the, the impression that BRT is a done deal. 
that no matter what you say or do, it's going to happen. All provincial parties, except for Freedom Party, Freedom Party Paul McKeever came out very clearly, totally opposed to BRT, called it a social engineering project, not even a transit project. Mm-hmm. So so what are the odds of anything changing? I mean, whether we, we get a yeah. Ford or a Horwath government, they're going to pour millions into the, these very ill-conceived projects that, as Paul McKeever pointed out, are going to require eternal subsidies on the part of the taxpayers. There's no way a project like this could ever pay for itself based on its users. Why are we so nutty? Like, I mean, it's just beyond... This, this is a big thing. I, not to divert your uh, answer here, Amir, but I'm, you're making me think again of uh, Christopher Moncton when he was on the show talking about United Nations Agenda 21. Oh, yeah. This fits in perfectly, hand in glove, with the agenda set out with the United Nations to get people out of their cars, to restruct capitalism, their words. They want to change capitalism as a model of doing business. And part of that model is to get people to rely on central authorities, central transportation systems, because that is a level of control. Sorry to interject, Amir. What was your answer to Bob? Part of my my mandate, and I think what I'd like to do as chair of the Transportation Committee, is to look at all aspects of transportation and improving mobility. There's a difference between saying, I want to force you out of your car and get you on a bus and saying, I want to improve not only transportation for those using a vehicle, but I I want to choose, I want to improve uh, transportation for pedestrians, for cyclists, for everyone across the city. That kind of mentality I don't see at City Hall. They're gung-ho on this bus rapid transit plan, putting in dedicated lanes and creating traffic congestion and making people miserable with their lives. Uh, as you said. Well, that's a purposeful part of it is the pur- plan to that's get right. people out of their car. I have to agree. Uh, I think it's a big waste of money. And I think that still, uh, however, that $170 million that the province is committed or the $200 million that the federal government com- is committed, we in the city of London deserve that. For too long, we've been subsidizing the GTA, the Toronto area. Um, our tax dollars are going to subsidize people in Toronto. And we've been completely neglected for the past Interesting you years. bring that up because today's election day in Ontario. And should the Ford government win, Ford has already promised to spend an extra $5 billion on Toronto Transit alone, on top of $9 billion already committed. And that money's coming out of Londoners' pockets, too. We're going to be paying for Toronto BRT. <laughs> you you, know? it, and this is, this is what frustrates me is that for so long, all we've been doing is looking after Torontonians. We work hard, we pay taxes, and our infrastructure deficit is at like $500 million in the city of London. We get no money for anything that is critical with regards to infrastructure, and the Torontonians just live a life of luxury. Well, of course. I mean, how many seats do they have in the provincial parliament versus our four? That's the true story right there. That's why we have wind farms surrounding our town, and there are none in Toronto. No. Because we are the dumping ground That's right. for, for Toronto. We, exactly. And then again, I don't know how you can say they're living in luxury in Toronto because the last time I was in Toronto, I don't ever want to go back again after my driving experience there. I mean, it is bad. Yeah, of you course. You get stuck on the QEW, you better have a portable washroom in your car. You better have a portable <laughs> restaurant because you're going to be sitting there for, for hours. And I've, I've done it. That's frustrating. I, I'm, you know, I just came back from Quebec last week and coming through, well, going to Quebec, I took the 407. Now, it's privately owned or privately run. It was built by government money, privately bought, privately 
administered. And I, I swear, I got through Toronto in 45 minutes from Milton to Oshawa. 45 mm. minutes. Now, mind you, I was speeding. Okay. But, <laughs> but however, that aside, right. there was nobody on the road. Right. Near the end of the 407, the province toll road starts again. And I swear, I could look at two kilometers in front of me, there was four cars. Yeah. Nobody wants to pay. I mean, what was it? 28 cents a kilometer. I mean, I wanted to pay that. On the way back, I came through Toronto 401. And I was probably averaging 30 kilometers an hour through the city. And it took two and a half hours probably to do the same distance that I did going up there in 45 minutes. And and Bob was right. If you had to pee, forget it, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you better have a cup with you, and and the ladies are screwed. Yeah, you can't even get into the exchange lane. Uh, <laughs> no, you can't turn around. You're stuck. No, you're no, really stuck. stuck. You got like 20 lanes of traffic, and oh. and you're just there. And I and I remember once I was coming out of Toronto around noon. This was on a weekday, noon, right? So it's not during rush hour, and Toronto to London typically is a two-hour drive. I got to London at 5:30 p.m. So a five and a half hour drive from Toronto. It's absolutely ludicrous. Now here's to put it into a little bit yeah. of perspective. The town of London, Ontario, is got is about roughly twenty kilometers on a side. Mm-hmm. So roughly four hundred square kilometers. By the way, that's not too smaller than the city of London, England, as far as size goes. And yet London, England, I don't know what the population is, but it's in the millions. Just as Toronto is in the millions, five, six million, I forget the number. However, what's the population of sleepy little London, Ontario? 375, 380,000 people. This place, I mean, you could do a Trump shooting down the middle of Dundas Street and not hit anybody. It, it's, <laughs> and it, yet they want bus rapid transit. Well, it's well known that you can get pretty much across the, the city, anywhere in the city, within 15 to 20 minutes. Oh, you can. And I've driven this city so many times. I know that for a fact, 15, yeah. 20 minutes. It is the most convenient mode of transportation is to use the automobile in London. Yeah, and what, and what are they doing to um, prevent that? They're traffic-calming neighborhoods, so-called, uh, because it didn't need to be traffic-calmed. You know, before they put in all the speed bumps, started taking the curbs out and jutting them out to, pre- have, to make have, cyclists go I in front to. of cars. Before they did all that, now they're destroying they're doing every, they're, they're doing everything they possibly can to make it inconvenient for automobile users. By design. By design, yeah. You know, it's funny, I just went through a neighborhood where they just repaved a road, and there's no traffic calming stuff on it, and I found myself going very slowly down that road. It was just nice and calm, just straight, straight. And then, then I got to the part of the road, this is in Kensal Park, where they have these curves, and they narrowed the road. I found myself doing 80 kph, because it's fun going around those curves. Right. High speed. <laughs> it really is, and you'll want to get through them quickly. You don't want to be there when another car comes. Right. You want to get through quick, otherwise there's not room for the two of you. Anyways, so much for traffic. We'll get back to this when we return. People will kill each other for a parking space in New York because they think, if I don't get this one, I may never get a space. You know? I'll be circling for months until somebody goes out to the Hamptons. I think because everybody in New York City knows there's got to be way more cars than parking spaces. You see cars driving in New York all hours of the night. It's like musical chairs, except everybody sat down around 1964. The problem is, car manufacturers are building hundreds of thousands of new cars every year. They're not making any new spaces. That's what they should be working on. Wouldn't that be great? You go to the auto show, and they got that big revolving turntable, and there's nothing on it. New from Chrysler, a space.
What does that device do? This measures the individual portions. What's the dosage? 0.01 milliliters. Very potent substance. We've improved our distillation process over the years. How long is the dosage effective? It varies with the individual. But never more than 72 hours. And then the symptoms return. Yes. Unfortunately, there is no cure for the plague. But Felicium inhibits the sickness with total efficiency. Allowing the Ornarans to lead normal lives. An unusual disease. Virulent, extremely persistent, yet I can't isolate it. The plague has baffled doctors on both planets for 200 years. We've therefore concentrated on treatment. Now, Amir, part of any, at least in North America, part of uh, any makeup of a city is quickly becoming the drug problem. And lots of people uh, hooked on oxycodone, oxycontin, and all this stuff. The city is trying to manage it by not treating them necessarily as criminals, but, but as a health problem and providing free needles and injection sites. And you're involved, at least in the controversy surrounding some of this. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, when we launched, uh, and, and I know, Bob, you mentioned uh, me being a project manager for Venture London. Venture London did a press conference to announce a twenty over $20 million investment, private investment, into the London Free Press building locally, which is our local newspaper. And that was to transform the building into the largest entrepreneurship center, one of the largest entrepreneurship centers in Canada. And basically the center would provide a series of services with service providers uh, to entrepreneurs to get them from startup to a business that's in market and is able to scale. No government money involved in this, by the way, right? Nope, it's all private money. Good. So what happened was three days after, the local health unit decided to announce that they were going to put a supervised injection site literally across the street. Three days after? That Three sounds days after. suspicious. That's just my mind how it works, but that's suspicious. Right. So, so three days after they do this, and um, now you have to realize that this is basically a shed, and they wanted to attach a trailer to the shed and turn it into an injection site. And so there would be absolutely no wraparound services or anything that would get people to rehabilitate and to detox. It's basically you walk in, you get your needle, and you hang out, or maybe you walk out. Who knows? They really didn't have a plan for it. So um, that was one of my biggest objections. So this turned into a big controversy because I came out and I said, this is an inappropriate location. Uh, it's an inappropriate location because there's about 2,000 people living there in the right in the vicinity of the neighborhood. There's a couple major hotels. Well, well, wait a minute. What's an appropriate location? I don't see an appropriate location for any of these things, and mm -hmm. nobody wants one in their neighborhood. So there's obviously a clear clash in opinion yeah. between the reality of what's going on in the neighborhood, and I've watched it. It's not pleasant, and it's not the kind of thing any city would want to have. Why are we doing this? 10, 20 years ago, this, this kind of drug addiction did not exist. What has happened that it has so blown up? Like to most people, this is an alien topic. It's not even relatable. Yeah, so you know, to even hear London's, this discussion is drug crisis is probably one of the worst in Canada next to Vancouver. And it's unbelievable because Vancouver and Toronto are, are cities that are six, seven times the size of us. And what we have is basically three million needles that are handed out annually. 
Um, and these are safe needles handed out. Obviously, there are people that are not looking for safe needles. And even though we've been handing out needles, we still see an increase in things like HIV and bloodborne illnesses. So what basically they're, they're proposing is this health unit is proposing to have a supervised injection site where the purpose of it would be to reduce harm. So it would be to reduce bloodborne illnesses. But, you know, my question is, you've kind of been doing that already with the needle syringe program, which has given out the 3 million needles. That's 8,000 needles a day. And we still see a rise in addiction. We still see a rise in poverty. We still see a rise in uh, mental illness in the city. The reasons why there's been a dramatic increase is, I think, for, for three reasons. Uh, the first one is that we've seen a significant number of people who are facing addiction and homelessness who are not from the City of London. Uh, in fact, the statistics from City Hall locally indicate that there are 25% of the existing homeless population are not from London. They're from outside of London. And they happen to come to London because we have the most extensive, uh, uh, biggest social services you could possibly think of. We have our social service sector is one of the largest in all of Ontario. So when you go to places like Stratford and you've just fallen into the poverty cycle, or you go to Cambridge or you go to St. Catharines, all these cities are within you know, 100 kilometers of London. They tell you the best place for you to be right now is the city of London. Hmm. So here's a one-way ticket to London. Uh, you're going to get treated fairly and adequately in that city. We don't have all the services you're looking for here in this city. And what are the other two um, factors? The other two factors are um, lack of employment. London has the lowest labor force participation rate. Many people are discouraged from work. One in four working age Londoners have given up completely hmm. looking for work. Uh, the employment rate is one of the lowest in all of Ontario. And so when we talked about the f in the first segment, this neglect from the province, from the upper levels of government towards London and southwestern Ontario, th that has something to do with it. Complete neglect by the upper levels of government. And so, so that's one. Uh, lack of employment opportunities basically cause people to break down, causes families to tear apart. You see divorce rates go up and you see a lot of mental illness. And then the way people cope with that mental illness is by taking drugs. The other thing is opioids themselves are actually used to relieve pain. And so you actually have like middle class families in well-to-do neighborhoods where, you know, the father or the husband just all of a sudden dies of overdose because they're just taking too much of the pain medication. The doctors are prescribing way too much of the medication. And so some argue that, you know, big pharma has something to do with it. Some argue that maybe it's just um, recklessness on the behalf of well, doctors. Has, has anybody suggested that maybe these people shouldn't be on drugs and maybe should be somehow weaned off the drugs? You know, it's, it, you're right. And, and no, you see, for example, uh, you know, one party leader, Doug Ford, who came out and said, I'm against supervised injection sites. I want rehab programs. Mm -hmm. I want, uh, I don't like this approach. And so you have people who are calling for that. You have others who aren't. I think what you're saying makes sense. I don't, I think just giving out drugs is a Band-Aid solution. It really is. Is it, is it not enabling all of these social services, the free needle injection sites, 
I mean, you know, I don't want to sound uh, not compassionate to, to the plight of these people, but aren't we, uh, as a government, enabling this to go on rather than let the consequences fall where they may? It was so, um, I, you know, I don't even know how to put it, but basically there was a woman who wanted to be identified as an anonymous person, approached city council at a committee meeting when they were discussing supervised injection sites. She said, I've been an addict, my daughter has been an addict, and the last thing we need is an injection site that's going to hurt us, not help us. And she was in tears for five minutes. How did she describe it hurting them? Basically what you're saying is that it enables us. It's, mm. it's, not, it's not treating us. It's not preventing us. It's not getting us to a place where we need to be. Because ultimately what this is is really just based on this concept of harm reduction. It's not actually – no statistic or data has proven whether you look at Vancouver or other locations around the world – it, there's never any proof that if you have an injection site, you're going to see a reduction in addiction. No, it's like a curing alcoholism by giving away free booze. Right. So, so <laughs> you know. Duh. Right. Um, so all you're doing is, yeah, maybe you're, what you're doing is you're potentially reducing bloodborne illnesses because you're giving out safe, clean needles, but you're not getting that person to where they need to be, which is detox, which is rehab. It doesn't happen with these kinds of facilities. And, and, I, find, and I, find, I find it fascinating that we're watching governments legalize a, a drug as benign, relatively speaking, to all the rest as cannabis. Yeah. And they're all fussy about where the locations of these are going to be and who's going to sell it. But meanwhile, these kind of drug injection sites are putting up everywhere. It just is so contradictory, it's hard to wrap your head around it. And, and, and here's, here's the other thing. These health units... They come out in every city, local health unit boards and whatever. They come out and say, these supervised injection sites are going to reduce crime. As if they have any authority to speak about crime. If you want to know anything about crime, the person you should be asking is the chief of police, not the local health unit director. And when you go look at the chief of police in Windsor, he has come out. And, and completely rejected the idea of a supervised injection site in the city of Windsor, two hours away from London, across the border from Detroit. And actually, the, the association of the chiefs of police in Ontario, which is the top law enforcement association, has come out, issued a 12-page report indicating that they are completely against an injection site. And they've said in the report that if any city, be it in Ontario or around the world, decides to go about setting up a supervised injection site, they should expect a significant increase in crime. Crime within the local vicinity of the facility and generally throughout the city. And there's a reason for that. A person who is addicted to drugs like maybe heroin or methamphetamine or some of the hard ones that you, you described there, well, they're typically very low income. In fact, they're probably living under the poverty line. And they are either on Ontario Works, which is our, our welfare uh, system here in, in Ontario, or they're on ODSB, or maybe a combination of both. With Ontario Works, you're getting like six, 700 bucks a month. That barely gets you by, you know, housing and food and that sort of thing. So where are you going to get the money to pay 
for these hard drugs. The supervised injection site does not give out drugs. They are still illicit drugs that you have to get from a drug dealer. And so what happens is two things. One... Is that is that a fact? Is that these injection sites don't supply the drugs? They do not supply the drugs. Except perhaps methadone, right? They do not supply the drugs at all whatsoever. You're responsible to getting it from a drug dealer who is giving out these illicit drugs. So, so then organized crime in the drug industry must be behind these things. I mean, who else would, <laughs> would be in favor of such a thing? Well, it's like prohibition. Who, who's in favor of prohibition? The people who are selling the hardest drugs. Right? It gives them the market. There you go. Right? So, so, so the, the, the question that, that comes, comes out is, how are they going to go about affording these drugs? Because the, they typically use them on average about three to four times a week. They can cost somewhere between, you know, as low as $40 to $100. Right? And so what typically happens is you see things like theft around the facility, uh, burglaries, automobile break-ins. Uh, because they need to find a way to accumulate money so that they can purchase these drugs. And then what also happens is the drug dealers, they hover around this injection site. Because like any business, you go where your clients are. Sure. And so if we're talking about a location like that where you got a school and you got residential buildings and you got a YMCA and you got all these different kinds of things, well, it's it's not appropriate. And And you're right. Perhaps it's not appropriate anywhere. And and so this is this is my big uh, frustration with with this process and this trend of setting up supervised injection sites in many different cities. You're feeling better. Yes, thank you. I'm fine now. I may not know Felicium's full effect on Anarian physiology, but I know how to interpret physical reactions. Well, the Anarian's recovering. Dijon and Romus are feeling fine. In fact, too fine. Felicium's a narcotic. Then Dijon and Romus, and everyone on their world, is a drug addict. This is not a symbiotic relationship. This is exploitation, pure and simple. The Breckians have caused all of this suffering and hardship only to make their pitiful lives easier. And all of it based on a lie. No, deny them this shipment. It is the least we can do. From the moment they agreed to give them the Felicium, my hands were tied. Captain, please, my planet is suffering. We beg you to give us our medicine. The matter is already decided. You're beaming down to your world with the Felicium. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I knew it. I knew you'd help us. We, we thank you. Now, don't thank me. Sorby and Langor, they decided to let you have it. And Captain, we appreciate your gift of the coils. Yes. Once our freighters are fixed, everything will be back to normal. No. No. The calls stay here.
about our freighters. You want to repair them. You'll have to learn to do it yourselves. We can't. If you don't help us, our ships will soon be inoperable. Quite possibly. Do you want our world to suffer? Oh, no. I don't want that. Without the freighters, there will be no more shipments of Felicium. We will die. You must trust yourselves. There are other options. Ensign, prepare to be my guests and their cargo down to Anara. Captain, I hope you realize what you've done to us. Of that you can be sure. Good luck. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. Amir, when you're talking about the, the, the three factors that go into the drug problem in, in London and around the world, I, w- I was taken aback by noticing a commonality, and it seems that the government is the central figure around all, which all of this is rotating. The government, we are living in, in a mixed economy. It is a socialist economy. The government controls it from the value of the dollar down to the distribution of wealth for particular businesses, whatever, business regulations driving businesses out of one city to another. The list goes on. It's endless. It's an amazing, having been in business myself and you as well, I'm sure you can attest to the fact that the the fingers of government into the pie of entrepreneurship and business is just making the pie a mishmash, a big mess. And it's difficult to do business in this country. That said, that the government is destroying the economy. People turn to drugs as a result. The government steps in and enables their drug habit by making it easy to take drugs with and try to remove some of the consequences of that bad habit, which then forces other businesses. For example, you get a, 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 a injection site next to a, a business. That business now sees a rise in crime. And they leave town forcing people out of work, which turn to drugs. And it's a vicious cycle. And I don't see the end if it's not a complete collapse of society. To even go off of that, uh, how many millions of dollars, if not probably at this point, billions of dollars have we seen in government grants that have gone towards programs within the social services sector with social service agencies that have further caused this vicious cycle to increase. You have, for example, a non-for-profit organization who applies for a grant. They get a million dollars, for example, from the upper levels of government. What they do is they create a series of steps and processes for someone who is facing an addiction to go through. And so first they have to have this thing called a pre-consultation meeting. So you go in for two hours and they talk about all their problems. 
Then they go into the second step, which is the official consultation meeting. And so basically what it turns out to be is that million dollars went to create basically government jobs and it's giving a purpose for the existence of that organization in that particular job and it never trickles down to the lowest common denominator and what happens is people who are facing addiction crises or who are mentally ill or who are homeless they give up they give up and 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 so the cycle continues it's only increasing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger the problem and as the problem gets bigger then social social service agencies saying the problem is getting bigger, so you need to give us more money. What you're saying then, or what you're alluding to, is that a city with a drug problem is manna from heaven for socialists. Socialism kills. The term we used to use for people like that was poverty pimps, is that they promote poverty. But poverty is a government-created issue, and until we learn to realize that, we just make it worse and worse and worse. What I, what I call it is an industry. It's the poverty. Yes. It's the poverty industry. In fact, the poverty industry in in London, the city that you talk about of three hundred eighty thousand people, is one of the largest industries, and it's the fastest growing industry amongst all other sectors of the economy. What you'll notice is actually the poverty industry has seen a seven percent growth in employment. Every other sector has basically seen a decline. Let's name some names here. Let's put some blame on some people who deserve blame. Who are the city council here? Who are the provincial government? And who is the federal government? They're all socialists. They're liberals. And you have a liberal federal government giving money to a liberal province, giving money to a liberal, even yeah, in name, liberal city council to promote drug addiction, destroy this city, which I think is what their intent is, as you said, to create jobs for government. I think with this controversy of the supervised injection site, I think we've seen more of London being on the general media spotlight for being a city that has a drug crisis than anything else, really. Like, for example, we don't ever talk about in the, in the print media or in news media about any of the positive benefits of locating a business in London or some of the things that the private sector or uh, commerce is doing here in, in, in the city. And there's some great stuff happening, but that never gets out there. It's always constantly all I, I flip over, to, uh, I flip open the news, I read the paper, and all I see is injection site here, injection site there, drugs in London, drugs there. It's, it's terrible. Just, it's, it's, like, it's, drugs, like it's like a daily, it's all it is in the paper and, and unemployment. And, and, you know, if we just got rid of minimum wages, you'd solve the unemployment problem <laughs> overnight. Overnight. That's something I wanted to talk about too, Amir, is that there has to be harm. There has to be consequences for actions in order for a person to learn, to grow, and to change their behavior. And when you remove the bad consequences of not having a job or of being an addict, and what you're doing is making, you're making it palatable. You're make, so I don't have a job, so what? I'll just go on welfare. You're doing worse than that. You're putting the bad consequences of, of the first person onto other people in society who didn't earn it and didn't do anything to, to be put in that mm-hmm. position. And to put people who are living healthy lifestyles, who have the proper values, and forcing upon them the burden and responsibility of looking after people who, re- who cannot or will not look after themselves is, quite frankly, immoral. That's not what a government is. Yeah, I don't want to see do. harm reduction. I want to see socialist reduction. 
Well, because that's, that's the cause that of an harm. That, that's the harm. <laughs> yeah. So I'm giving it a name. So, so I think I think it's uh, well, and and that's one of the big problems with government is it likes to take away personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's it's like it's got this paternal view of people being dependent on on government, and so responsibility is one of the biggest. You know, it's it's like one of the most important things that you can give to an independent person and just allow them to take Let's care see, of themselves. Responsibility goes hand in hand with one thing and one thing only, and that's individual freedom. Yeah. There is An no other there is no other responsibility. Everything else is BS when it comes to responsibility. You know, for someone to get out of a mental illness or addiction, it requires resilience. And you're not gonna have resilience unless you fundamentally understand that you are responsible for you and you are the only person who is going to get yourself out of the situation you're in. No one else is going to help you because it's your mind and you control your mind. You control your destiny. And so uh, that doesn't typically get promoted. It's we need to take care of you and that's fine. I think there's room for compassion in society but, but we never hear at least no longer I don't hear the notion of personal responsibility. And I think that is quite frustrating. In fact, you know, when we talk about someone like Jordan Peterson and what he says about the universities and the situation currently within academia, it has completely waged war against the notion of individualism and personal responsibility, which is why young people are turning to Jordan Peterson because he's promoting this notion that you are your independent self, you control uh, your destiny, and you need to realize that you're responsible for your actions. And, and that kind of message of um, being able to take ownership of your life, I think has resonated with so many young people that that's why he's got such a large following. Yeah. And they I don't teach that in, the, in, in academia. They're teaching neo-Marxism yeah. and they're teaching postmodernism, And that's the kind of thing that doesn't, that doesn't the, work. The thing that motivates people, and I've seen it even in the smallest children, is reality and reason and yeah. understanding things. I see it in my grandson who's four and five years old. He loves to know things and if somebody gives him anything that he knows is BS, he almost screams in pain. Marxism is not based on anything in reality. It's based on putting what's in your mind ahead of what is real. They think that if you think something it becomes real. Wishing doesn't make it so and that's what Marxism is completely based on and yeah. so are all of our political parties. When are we going to wake up? Yeah. So aren't we the problem? Well in, in Ontario, I don't know a lot of our listeners aren't going to be familiar with what's going on here, but today is Election Day in Ontario, and we have the choices. Other than Freedom Party, which is our party, you've had Blue Socialism, Red Socialism, Orange Socialism, and Green Socialism. Conservatives, Liberal, and NDP, which are Communists, and um, the Green Party. All of them are Socialists, including the Progressive Conservatives. Look at the first name of a Progressive, Progressive Conservative Party. Doug Ford, the leader of that party, has promised to continue all of the socialist programs that has been um, created in this province, mostly by the Progressive Conservative Party, from OHIP to the Ontario Human Rights Commissions to the LCBO to the Bear Store. All of these things have been created by the so-called Conservatives and are being... uh, We never see an end of it. There doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's getting really dejecting. Yeah, it, 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 can, it can get quite depressing. Yes. Um, <laughs> it almost makes you want to turn to drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but but you know what? Um, you 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 raise an you raise an interesting point. And when you when you asked who can we blame, um, I don't know. Like I don't know who to blame. Do we blame ourselves? Do we blame the people we elect? Do we? It's 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 hard. Um, the other thing is, you look at locally, for example. You mentioned, for example, the Liberal Party, the London North Centre uh, MPP, uh, Deb Matthews. One of the reasons why she's been successful in getting reelected numerous times is because that very social service uh, sector that we're talking about, the poverty industry, has uh, has supported her tremendously, supported her, put everything behind her, and in return, she is reciprocated. We've seen millions of dollars coming through Deb Matthews from the provincial government towards the poverty industry. So it's self-interest that's driving a lot of this. Absolutely. Look, there are 111 workforce development agencies in the City of London. 111 organizations pretty much doing the exact same thing with regards to workforce development. There's 186 mental illness organizations. This is a little town. Yeah. And and so the list goes That's on. almost a total hundreds, population. Hundreds and <laughs> yeah. hundreds of organizations doing pretty much the same thing, all looking for government grants as a way of living. No, we, we don't see any increase in private sector jobs. In fact, over the past decade, there's been none. And so that's been with liberal governments, that's been with conservative government, that's been with any kind of government you can imagine, any across the party lines. And so you just ask yourself, uh, at what point is this gonna end? How's your new job, Lois? Great. Broadcasting is a whole new world. It's very exciting. Not like life at the planet, dull and boring. You know what I mean. Nothing would ever replace the planet. Just not going to sit around obsessing about it. Well, I'm just trying to find out why the paper failed. And what we know is just the tip of the iceberg, Lois. What? You're afraid, Lois. I'm not afraid of anything. Yes, you are. You're afraid of the truth. I always like to leave the, sto- leave the show on an upbeat note and at least talk about what we can do to solve some of the problems that we've just been talking about with the drug issue and the economy and joblessness and, and, and the government intrusion in everyday life. And right now, Tommy Robinson is in prison and we're in jail serving three, 13 months uh, for what I think is a major injustice. Millions, I, and I, I saw these figures... Probably millions of people are protesting in the street. Her filters is coming over from uh, Denmark to go and um, protest in, in England. Uh, you've had protests in Toronto, New York City, Germany, all over England trying to say, you know, free Tommy Robinson. And I saw a video on YouTube from an ex-policeman who worked in London, England. And he had this to say. He says, protest all you want. It's not going to change a thing until you attack 
the government where it hurts most. What they want most is power and control. And a protest is not going to take away that power and control. You have to get political. And he meant by that you have to get into the political party system. You have to knock on doors with leaflets advocating a political party who's going to take away the power of the party in power who's causing all this trouble. And until you do that, protests are like music music to the ears of these communists because they're seeing that, hey, look, I'm having an effect. Putting Tommy Robinson behind bars made me smile, says the judge, peering out of the window above the Leeds courthouse. And he loves it when a million people are out there protesting because he's an evil man. These are evil people who, as Bob would say, kill their own mother to maintain control and power. And the only way to attack that is to get political. And and we've had proof of that ourselves with Freedom Party. When Freedom Party started, we we were a political party, which meant we, and still are, a political option. But we acted a lot like a lobby group. We changed laws in this province that none of the, none of the parties wanted to change. And they wouldn't have if we were just a lobby group. But the fact that we represented a potential lost vote scared the hell out of them. Oh, yeah. It took us two newspaper ads to change Sunday shopping laws in Ontario. We ran them in southern Ontario. Everything changed overnight. We beat the Pan Am games. $110 million wasted money they wanted to spend on the city of London. We've beat I don't know how many millions of dollars worth of these BIAs, which is another thing we should talk about municipally sometime, these business improvement areas, which are government-run things and, and are not business-oriented. Now, another way um, to... to, to improve the situation rather than being political as this ex-police officer suggested is to do what you're doing Amir. Now we're thinking globally here Bob and I. Amir you're local and what you're doing locally you even alluded it to uh, to yourself you said it outright actually during the show is that you said people have to take control of their own lives only they can change the situation of their own lives. So what are you doing locally to help solve these problems? Well, for a few years now, I've been crying out of the top of my lungs about the jobs crisis in this city. And so, you know, you can only talk for so long. These decision makers and people in positions of power, as you mentioned, are are not going to address it. It clearly hasn't been addressed. So what I did was I put together a, a plan to essentially establish the largest entrepreneurship center in Canada, um, a 180,000 square foot facility that will provide a range of services to entrepreneurs in the private sector and more so specifically the tech sector in London and will create the next generation of businesses and commerce in this city. And only until we create jobs in this city are we actually going to address the jobs crisis. And so what this will do is it'll create hundreds of new jobs. We we actually have companies in the city like Voices.com and Big Blue Bubble who uh, started locally with one or two people. They're now employing two, 300 people. Uh, it's really impressive. And I want to do that. I want to make sure that we have a facility that will provide all the expertise, all the past failures of successful entrepreneurs that the new entrepreneurs can learn from, anything that they would need to get a quick start so that it doesn't take them six months, but rather it takes them days to get their business started and streamline every aspect of the initial operations of starting a venture. And so we're calling it Venture London, and we've partnered with a landlord locally. I've got him to commit over $20 million, which is huge, huge amount of money. And we will transform the London Free Press building, 
And uh, what was once a place where stories were written, we will create those stories now. And I'm really, I'm really excited because I think that what we can do here is put London on not just the national spotlight, but the international spotlight. And what we're going to do is we're going to connect London to major investors across the world, whether it be it in the U.S., Europe, in Israel, in other places around the world. And um, I think it's the direction that we need to take here locally, long overdue, but at some point it's going to happen. I so, love, I love the irony here. Here you are taking over the London Free Press building. But they have been the problem in this city with their editorial viewpoint and their spewing of socialist propaganda and garbage out there. As you said before, all I can see is negativity. It is garbage, too. Some of the stuff they've written during this past election campaign that has nothing to do with Freedom Party, just with other people. It's just not true. Ain't ain't so. No, no, it's complete fake news. Back when the Blackburns owned it, I think it was probably had a bit of respect. Now, it's owned by the National Post, but the local people are hangers-on from when it wasn't. And, of course, they're all lefties. All communists and socialists and fascists. Yep, so you might get the newspaper actually endorsing, for example, Doug Ford, who people may think is on the right but just not. And now you've taken over their building and you're going to create something positive out of it. Beautiful. And and what I have to say is, uh, with regards to the Doug Ford endorsement, just for, for the audience here, that endorsement was an executive decision by Post Media and it was not a local decision. That's right. And I think my biggest concern with with the paper has been uh, since this BRT controversy started, really. And, and so actually, about a month ago, there was an article that was written by a local journalist, Jonathan Scherer, and within 30 minutes, that article, which was actually very neutral, I mean, it, it had the opinions of the local councillors, it incorporated different viewpoints, but it was just somewhat critical of the BRT plan with regards to one of the streets that it was going to operate on. 30 minutes later, once it was posted, it was taken down, never to be found again. Is that right? Never to be found again. Only a few people took uh, screenshots or printed it, and, and so at that point, I knew that this, this doesn't seem like objective journalism. It really doesn't. Well, listen, when I, I've, been, I've been banned from the free press, and that was all because of a human rights con, uh, a complaint that was filed against a local London landlord that I stepped into. I defended him. I'm not a lawyer, but I beat the case. I found out he had nothing to do with any of the racist claims being made against them. They were all created, made up, manufactured, and done by the London Free Press. I was furious with them. And then they got really mad at me because when I took over the case at the Human Rights Commission, they gave me the powers of a lawyer and I could subpoena them. And so I had to subpoena the Free Press on the basis of its um, inaccuracy in reporting, shall we say, to put it, to put it mildly. <laughs> How long has it been, Robert, since that happened? Oh, you're going back to the 80s, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, and they just never forget, do they? No, it's the same people there. A lot of the same people yeah, I guess working that's for it. the paper today have been there 30 years ago. But for me, it's never been anything personal. I was just out for justice. But apparently these things, these kinds of values are not shared by our media people, and that frightens me. Absolutely. You can, you can see it in the tone of the writing. You can see it in what they choose to cover and what they don't choose to cover. Uh, and, and it may not just be with the London Free Press. It, it, it's definitely with other media outlets as well. But the notion of these media organizations creating, artificially creating controversy, they always say, we'd like to give, we'd like to see the other viewpoint, the other side of the story. But sometimes they've got an agenda of wanting to protect one side of the story and making that one side look great. 
and then asking certain questions that will make the other person or the other side look awful, right? And that's how they create uh, uh, division within within communities. That's how they that's how they uh, create controversy. So, for example, let's say let's talk about this bus rapid transit conversation again. What they'll do is they'll t- they'll interview the people who are against bus rapid transit, and then they'll spin that interview to make them look evil. And then they'll interview people that are pro bus rapid transit and it'll make them look wonderful, mm-hmm. right? And so they'll still claim that they're being neutral and balanced because they're covering both sides. But the way they present the other side that they don't agree with, it gives you a clear uh, distinction of who is good and who is bad. That, that brings up something I've been thinking about, and that is not just the simple fact of fake news. It is outright deceit. I see it, it is with, deceitful, yes. I see it with the provincial um, progressive conservative party. It is deceitful for anybody in that party to say they are pro-business. It is deceitful to say they are capitalists. It is deceitful to say that they are on the right. They are not. They are complete leftists. They are complete socialists. The thing is that people on the right, you know, uh, good people who might think that, hey, you know, I'm a... I'm a conservative. I want to vote for the PCs because, you know, I think that they're they're conservative. They're capitalists. They believe in individualism. But when you look at the exact their voting record and the legislation record of the party, you can see that they are clearly leftists. So it's the, the deceit. And with the London Free Press and all of the newspapers who are leftists claiming that they are objective, there's the deceit. These papers are the papers of record. When you have a notice to put out, and you want to put it on the record, whether it be an obituary, a name change, a business uh, opening up or whatever, you want it on the record, this is the paper you go to. And for that rag to come out and say, like, look, we're objective, I think is deceitful for the very reasons that you bring up, the tactics that they use to spin a story, to push a left-wing agenda. It is It is pure, pure deceit. Well, Amir, we're out of time today again, and just want to say that uh, we don't endeavor to present balanced news here. We just talk about what we believe to be just right, and we do keep everything we say on the record. And 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 that's that's what I really that's what I'm looking for uh, in the sense that if the London Free Press or if CBC or CTV or any of these media organizations do have an agenda, be open with the people. Sure. Be truthful. Don't use the people and, and, and play these deceitful tactics against them. Yeah, because it's, they're trying to keep their true identity from you, and that's what's scary, which is not what we're doing here. We are just right, and we'll continue to be next week, so join us again then when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. How'd it go, sir? Oh, very well, very well. I was talking about government industry cooperation. There's a very interesting project going on up in the Midlands at the moment. I, I don't suppose you'd have heard about it much down here, but it's very interesting. If you know the background. You don't mean the Solihull project, sir? Yes, you've heard about it. What are you laughing about? Oh, no, he's... <laughs> what have you heard? Oh, nothing, really, sir. We regard it as a shining example of collaboration between government and private industry. 
<laughs> <laughs> What's so funny, George? 